unlike that when we come to a biblical genealogy. We often treat them the same way. We, we don't have great interest there. This, this is not something I want to I consider. Well, why are they listing names? And there's a number of reasons why genealogies are there at different books of the Bible. There's a number of different reasons. And again, we skip over these sections very often and find very little value in them for not asking the right questions of, why is this one here? Again, when we're looking at the origins of human history, perhaps we could, on the surface, say, well, we know why chapter 5 is here, because it's simply telling us how the origins got going. Uh, you know, how people uh, passed lineage, generation to generation, how we ended up at Noah. True, yes, but that would be half of the answer, and perhaps not the most significant. If we look at, for the next few minutes, we will indeed look at the genealogical record presented to you in chapter 5 in the context of 4 and 6. It's significant what we are taught here in the genealogy. And it's not like someone else's, because due to origins of human history, it is also yours. A part of origins. The story of humanity. And so if we look at it just for a little while here, we're going to see it's theological, as well as its historical truth. I hope to persuade you to think about identity. As, again, you look at this genealogy, it is not altogether someone else's. I think of all the talk regarding identity these days, I know that you consider it as well. Uh, racial identity. Sexual identity, gender, and so forth. Authenticity is what we must have in this hour of humanity. Authenticity. And we're all on a quest to find authenticity, our real self, our true sense of identity. And here, I want to persuade you, here, in the origins, in this genealogy of sorts, of all the places, here, in chapter 5, we find true and actual identity. Now again, we're meant to submit to this identity, receive it, think on it, apply it, submit to it. Perhaps not. But will the church of Jesus Christ receive it? Against all the other narratives for identity, will you, the people of God, look at Genesis 5 and take it seriously? That in Genesis 5, we are given a sound and meaningful I won't hang long here, but I do draw your attention to realities of nature in verse 2. That God created male and female. If we speak of identity, we'd be wise to ground our sense of sexual identity, gender identity, role, and so forth, in a true revealed anthropology of Genesis 2. Genesis are natural realities. God created men. He did. Created a man. And he's not a woman. And God created a woman. Female. And that, that these things belong to nature. This is how God created and blessed men and women. And, and we, again, and again, we can get into all kinds of things in the and, and, and perhaps at some point 
we will. We'll step out in the weeds. And, 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 I, and I don't bring this up lightly and then jump right back to where I'm comfortable. I just don't have time. Again, I would really be squeezing robins for a long time. But I do want to pressure you to consider we're not in a free fall for identity. We're not. Even if culture still persuades us that we are. It is a binary. There is male and there is female. And there is in their confusion that then does come from sin and its discord in humanity and anthropology and relations. But we, I want to encourage you, we as a society are in full force seeking to affirm confusion, reinforce confusion, uphold confusion as virtue, denying nature and reality. The church must be wise on this, careful on it, and take their cues grounded in scripture that is affirmed in nature. This biblical account of origin, genealogy, is an anthropology that is given us from church, we recognize even in the first century, so from the very beginning of human origin, all the way to the Apostle Paul writing in the New Testament, he speaks of sexual ethics and identity in the life of the church in, at minimum, two portions very clearly. You can think of 1 Corinthians 11, where there's this issue of head covering. And we can, again, go off into the weeds. I'm way too far off now, but I want to persuade you. 1 Corinthians 11, the issue of the role of a man and a woman and life in the church and head coverings and issues. What is culture? What, it, what is it? Again, I don't have time to dissect. I come back and at least provide you with the argument that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 11 is grounded in nature. Nonetheless, it's grounded in nature. And he reaches all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because there's an anthropology there and an ethics there that flow in our lives as we relate to men and women today. Nature is stubborn. And we seek for some weird, odd reason, again, which we just begin to dissect, to overthrow her. As though nature doesn't testify to God and it doesn't belong to us. But it's amiable. We can just do with it what we please. It's a wax nose we can move with no burden that we will bear from it. That is a lie. And you will see this come home to child who seems confused because culture tells them that's virtue. They will be broken. We should uphold nature as God has designed it. Affirm, strengthen, and encourage. Provide a godly identity. Paul says it as well in the New Testament in portions of 1 Timothy, I think two or three roles in the church. That's what he grounds them. Again, we can argue about, well, this, that, this piece, and that piece, and these are moving parts, fine. 
Cain is flourishing. He built this city, Enoch, or he says Enoch built at this point as he built it, and he names it after his son. And they are on the rise. But then there's this small little bright light in 26 of chapter 4. Seth is born to the godly. So, so, so there, 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 there's, there, there's a, a, a breaking in, as source of the promise of Genesis 3 the team, that there will be multiple offsprings to the godly. There will be an offspring, definitive, who will come from the godly line. And so we see this, this, this ray of light break through the clouds with the birth of Seth. But again, it's a single birth in light of an entire city of man. They're fighting now. And so as you leave that chapter 4 and you enter into this genealogy, it's not like, you know what? Right now is a great time to just list a bunch of random names. That, 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 that's not what's being done here. There's a purpose. Now verse 1 of chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is origins. The genesis of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female. He created them. And he blessed them. And he named them. Now, if you look at the text of the first, as you're approaching the rest of the genealogy, Moses is giving you here, in the very first few words, the very first few phrases, he's giving you what you consider a prologue. To the list that follows. Here's your entry point. Dear reader, what you're about to read is the Genesis story of Adam and his offspring. And as you then read it and proceed through the list of names, there are a few truths that you must keep firmly fixed in your mind. This is what Moses is writing the prologue for. I want to walk through each one of them. Blessed realities that we need to keep firmly fixed in our minds as we proceed through the list of names. The very first, I'll draw your attention to this, but the very first fixed reality that helps us understand ourselves in time, who we are as an individual, who I am, who you are, who we are as a people, is number one, God. Father of all mankind. This is the first thing. This is the prologue. This is what you're to keep in mind, firmly fixed. As you read the rest of the names, you need to keep fixed in your mind that God is the Father of all mankind. How so? Let me show you the moving parts and piece together that this is exactly what Moses wants us to grasp. By reaching back to the beginning of the generations of Adam, all with the creation narrative. But notice there's two things that stand out here about God being the father of mankind. Notice verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he Named them. And he named 
explicitly Moses writes and names Caleb. This is a fatherly act. Essentially to the name of naming process. He, he bears God's likeness and he is named by God. This is a fatherly act. That's why Moses includes it here. He first creates man. And this is how he made him. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It, 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 how did he do so? How did he make him? How did he create him? In his very own likeness. And he is, in that sense, maybe we'd say, a chip off the block. What, what do you mean? Where's the relation? He named him. And, and in case we're confused, like, well, maybe that's not a problem. Yeah, it's just that he, you know, what are you going to not call him? No, no, it is purposeful. It is the way that a father behaves to a child, because notice Adam then completely parallels it. Moses writes, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. Notice what Adam's son is. His son is in Adam's likeness. God created man. He made him in the likeness of himself. When Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. And in case we just missed it, what likeness means, he, he then reinforces, you know, after his image. Just as God created man as a father, so also Adam fathered a little one in his image. And, and Adam took from God that, 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 that same call, that same familiar move. He, after he had one in his likeness, and in fact, after his very own image, Certain ones will face judgment. 
There's certain ones who will be redeemed and, and, and be in the presence of the Lord forever. But there's a whole bunch of people, you know, that they just don't have a relationship. No, no. all. That's what, that, that's what it's beginning with Adam. This is the genesis of humanity. God fathered Adam. And from Adam flows all. He is the father of all mankind. And by virtue of being created in his likeness, bearing his image, even if it be so marred and ungodly, it still is un-man and un-woman, the imprint of God's image. They bear relation to him. It is of what type of relation do you want, or of what quality of relation do you have? Again, you could look just quickly back and think of Cain and Abel. Both bore relations to God.
first issue that Moses is trying to get us through, the list of names, in order that we would recognize the generations and generations and generations and generations of individuals is to find out the source of all that life is God. And he is the father of all mankind. And as Moses says, is he not your father who then created you and established you? We've got this. Not only is God, the second piece of the genealogy, not only is he the father, or has he fathered mankind, he is also the blessing. That is, God blessed mankind when he created him pure and upright. Look at the text. As he, as, as, so now he's the father, but we're looking at his relation to man. How, how it, he's not curmudgeonly, as, as he gives life to you. Notice the features of his uh, disposition towards man when he created him. This is Genesis of everything. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, just like male and female. It's binary. There's a man and there's a woman. And this is nature. He created them thus, this way. And he wasn't a curmudgeon, but he was a benevolent father. He blessed them. Again, by virtue of being in the likeness of God, Adam and Eve possess virtue, perverse, uh, possess holiness and righteousness. God blessed them. Sometimes we look at it hard in the, in the, in the, in the covenant work for Adam in the garden between this issue of obedience and strict obedience, perfect and perpetual obedience, and Adam failed. We think, man, how in the world could Adam have succeeded? But we often Blessed, created him, nourished him, empowered him, gave him virtue, mercy, and obedience. 
this, and I just remind you, I know you know this text, but now I want you to hear this text in light of where we're going for the rest of genealogy. Because what we have in verse 1 and 2 and portions of 3 is this beautiful, familiar context of God as Father, Adam's presence, obedient Son, Eve as helpmate in a binary relation, a complementary husband and wife, and two or one. Notice the genealogy where you get there. Verse 4, the 
days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years. And we know that he fathered Seth in verse 26 of chapter 4. So the days of Adam uh, were 800 years. Uh, he fathered Seth for 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters, so the, the family began to flourish. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. Now, notice the new realities here. You see it. And he died. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, Moses carefully writes. Look at verse 8. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. Look at verse 11. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years. Yep, and he died. Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel. Just throw a level in there, it works. Were 895 years. And he died. Thus all the days, verse 20, thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. Verse 27, thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. That always blows everybody's mind. And he died. Verse 31, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And predictably, he died. Now there's a question here to ask. We have to ask of the genealogical record because there's a purpose why Moses wants to be But we have to ask, why tell us all the days of someone's life, and then add, and he died? Have you thought of that? As you read the genealogy, you know, oh, I, I didn't get it. So, so he said that all the days were 895 years, and he died. Again, if he lived, the explicit number of his days listed, 895, then we can easily infer that he then must have
You see, if we look at the genealogy in the prologue, the first two or three or four verses, we recognize two important things for us to never forget. And that is, God rules over mankind. And he rules over all that he has created as father and judge. He created them in his likeness. He named them as a father would. And yet he requires justice. Finally, the last piece of our text is not just that he appears as father and judge, of which he absolutely does, and not to only some of us, but to all of us, all men and all women and all children. He appears as father and as judge, and yet, lest we get too scared over the concept of judgment and death, but yet, notice, he also remains steadfast to his promise of grace. Look at verse 18, and this is the, the, the uh, out of all this death, he died, and 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 he died, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years in father Methuselah, Enoch, or Enoch, walked with God. So it really slows down, right? It's just listing all the years of people living and dying, living and dying, living and dying, living and dying, living and dying. Everybody died, but Enoch walked. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 total. Then you notice it doesn't say, and he died. Which is what we would predict in verse 24. Because right if we're told somebody's fullness of years, we're told the reality of sin. They died. But in verse 24, we read, don't fall asleep on me. Don't just skip past something unique is once again, Enoch walked with God. The text actually reads, and he was not, the text is, he was not found. That, that, that might be of note to you. And he was not. In other words, nobody could find him. For God had taken him. Now, what is the strategy here with Enoch and God? Why does God uniquely interact with Enoch here? Because again, Moses writes here very clearly that in the midst of death and dying, generation after generation, from father to son through the transmission process, each one of us is born in a condition of sin. And each one of us will face death physically. But there is a pathway toward life among those. How can we have this sense of escaping judgment? And Enoch is not the normative case. It's a unique case. It's a testament that stands out. But his pathway of life is not unique. And for the people of God, it shouldn't stand out. The ingredients toward life, for Enoch and for you, the reader, is the same. Walking with God. Notice the order of the text. He walked with God. You see it, right? So verse 22, Enoch, the first thing we know about him is he walked with God. The very next thing we see in the text, Enoch walked with God. The result was Enoch could not be found by God. 
Again, I want to note the importance of Enoch. It's important for us to grasp that God did not take Enoch out of the list of those who were dying because Enoch was not a sinner like the rest. So what's the purpose of If Enoch was not uh, without sin and the rest of them were and they suffered the fate of a natural born sinner, they all physically died, then does it imply that Enoch, since he walked with God, must not have been a sinner? And that's what Enoch received. The answer is no. For an actual generation, Enoch was born. That means he was a sinner. So Enoch, as a sinner, was taken so that he may serve as an example that even for sinners, there is left a hope Does indeed intend to do away with. 